Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the insert in the bulletin. I'd like to begin our time by reading this passage, Luke 18, 18 to 30. It's going to take us three weeks to get through it all. Um, and yet I think it's a, a vitally important passage for us as we understand our Lord, his ministry, the gospel, evangelism, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let's read Luke 18, 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Lord God, we... Pray and ask for your blessing on your word. And our flesh alone profits nothing. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Take our hearts of stone and shatter them. Replace them with living hearts. Lord, as we look at your son, the perfect image and representation of you, help us to learn and receive his words, even as they are challenging. In Jesus' name. Amen. We began looking at this passage last week, and I'll remind you that this is a unit, and one of the indicators we get from Luke is it begins and ends with the same thing. That's called an inclusio, and it's a literary device to let you know you're dealing with a unit. So what's the question the rich young ruler asks? What must I do, verse 18, to inherit eternal life? What note does Jesus end on in verse 30? And in the age to come, eternal life. So eternal life brackets this section. So we know we're dealing with a unit. It also helps us gain a focus on the theme. This is about how do you gain eternal life? Or, as the crowds put it in verse 26, how can you be saved? This is about salvation. Make no mistake. And the ruler came to Jesus with a question that is unarguably the most important question any person can ask. If, if, if the word of God is true, you and I will never not be. The only question is where will we be? 
And in light of eternity, this life is a vapor and determining what can I do? What can you do to inherit eternal life is the most fundamental question. Maybe that's a question on your mind here today. Listen up. Pay attention. Our Lord will answer this. But it's also instructive for us in ways of evangelism. We talked last week about how this text poses a bit of a problem um, to some approaches to evangelism. And I suggested that one of the things you will find in the New Testament as you read it is there is no programmatic method of evangelism. Uh, the, the gospel is preached in all manner of ways, to all manners of people, and it would be a mistake to take this and make this your programmatic approach to evangelism, just as much as it would be a mistake to take, say, the Philippian jailer who asked a near-identical question and use that as your programmatic example. In fact, we, one of the questions we considered was, why is it that Jesus' answer to the rich ruler, he's commonly known as the rich young ruler, because in Mark we're told he's young, but Luke doesn't focus on that. Why is Jesus' answer to him and his question so radically different from the answer Paul gives to the Philippian jailer? Remember, the Philippian jailer falls at Paul and Silas's feet and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What that means is you can't simply write off the difference by harping on the word do, which I've, I've seen some people try to do, because the Philippian jailer wants to know what he has to do to be saved. And we'll see as Jesus unmasks his heart what's going on there, but I think the question itself doesn't give it away. So how is it that the Philippian jailer is told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your whole household? And here, Jesus responds with, why do you call me good? I mean, it's a radically different answer. And if your understanding of the gospel and evangelism can't account for this, I'd encourage you to let God's word stretch your understanding. Because our Lord is an evangelist. He came to seek and save the lost. And so he's doing something here. And it's just in our modern-day, seeker-sensitive um, church growth approach, you don't see what Jesus does happen very often. In fact, in a small little commentary on the rich young ruler by Walter Chantry, today's gospel, authentic or synthetic, he writes this, summing up the problem in his day, in the 70s, what would be your reflex to such a circumstance? He's referring to this man coming up. Here is an outstanding fellow begging to know how he can get to heaven. This is the evangelist's dream. Wouldn't you open your Bible Ask him essential questions. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Will you accept Jesus as your personal savior? Pray this prayer after me. He would answer in the affirmative to each question with very little instruction. Just show him the usual verses. Aren't you a little disappointed to see Jesus handling this tender soul so roughly? How could our Lord use such obviously poor tactics with a sinner? He began with a rebuke and went on to talk about the Ten Commandments of all things. Demanded immense sacrifice as a condition of having eternal life and allowed the fish to get away. And I, I think that's a fair commentary on much that goes under the name of evangelism these days. And here's the principle we, we tried to settle on last week that I'll repeat for you. And that is, Jesus takes him to the law because again and again and again what we see in Scripture is law for the proud and the self-righteous and grace for the humble. So the big difference between the Philippian jailer and this man is the Philippian jailer is broken. 
Remember, we, we sing a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's a man who was about to commit suicide because he had believed he had lost his charge. And when he discovers that these men have saved his life by staying in the prison, he falls down on his face in front of them. This is not a man who needs to be told to repent. This is not a man who needs to be told to, to stop being proud. It's a broken man, and he gets grace. He gets grace. We've already seen that in Luke's gospel, that Jesus' treatment of the sinful woman who washed his feet with her hair. Yet we've also seen, back in chapter 10, when the lawyer asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life, again, the law. What is your reading of the law? Well, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your neighbors, yourself. Good, do this and you will live. Well, who is my neighbor? And we go into the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I think you'll see in the New Testament a clear pattern that when you're dealing with someone who's proud, self-righteous, unaware of their sinfulness, what, what is brought to bear is not, ask Jesus into your heart, but the law of God. Because the law of God reveals sin, convicts of sin, and it, it closes the mouth of the proud. And so we need to pray and ask for wisdom as we, as we preach the gospel. Because there are times when absolutely, answer as Paul and Silas did with the, to the Philippian jailer. Absolutely. Don't, don't do what Jesus is doing here. There are times that's absolutely the right call to make. But there are equally other times where Jesus' approach here to a man who externally looked so promising, unmasked, huge issues of pride, self-righteousness, and idolatry. So, that's sort of reviewing where we've come. And so Jesus gives them the law, and we see that this man's understanding of the law was far too low because he confidently replies, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus focused on commandments five through nine, what we call sometimes the second table of the law, those commandments that deal horizontally with your neighbor. And he doesn't address 10 directly, which is do not covet, but then he does here with his challenge. So Jesus' response, trying to show this man his lostness, and understand that as strong as this is, Jesus is doing him a kindness. If someone is deceived and self-righteous, unaware of their sinfulness, you don't do them a kindness by not pointing that out to them. You, know, you don't want to be a jerk. You don't want to be rude. But our Lord is loving this man in, in pointing him to the law. And in, I just want to commend to you, um, if you're wondering, well, what does that look like? How does that work? Um, there's, there's a lot of ways you can do that. There's one handy tool that I came across through the, uh, the Way of the Master Evangelism series with Ray Comfort. And again, it's just a tool for your toolbox. It's not another method, but one of the things he'll do, he'll go up and do street evangelism. He'll talk to people, and just when anybody will admit they're, a, they're sinful in some sense. They've, they've made mistakes. But very few people in any way grasp they justly and rightly abide under God's wrath. And so he'll walk up to someone and Ask them if they've made a mistake. Yeah, they've made a mistake. What do you think is going to happen when you die? Do you think God will let you into heaven or not? Oh, I think he'll let me in. Well, why is that? I'm, I think I'm a decent person, a good, good person. And they say, oh, do you mind if I test that claim? Okay, and he'll go to the Ten Commandments. Is, is something most people generally recognize as, as a good rule. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah, yeah, I've told a lie. What does that make you? Usually the first response is human. If I lied to you, what would you call me? Oh, a liar. So are you a liar? And you can sort of see the gears turning. Well, I don't know if I'm a liar. I mean, I've told a lot. How many lies do you need to tell before you become a liar? Okay. Have you ever, uh, have you ever looked at someone with lust? As Jesus says, if, if you do that, you've committed adultery. Ever done that? Yeah. What does that make you? 
well, no, surely. And then you sort of go through and you end up with this person's own acknowledgement. I'm a lying, adulterous, murderer at heart, coveting, disobedient. Then you ask them, do you, do you think on that standard you're going to pass or fail if you stand before God at judgment? And it doesn't always happen. I've seen the law do its work and the, the, the penny drops and I'm in trouble. Yeah, and that's one way you can use the law um, as you present the gospel. It's not enough to recognize you've made mistakes. This man recognizes he doesn't have sufficient righteousness to make it and have eternal life. He knows he's lacking. He's not confident that he's fully righteous. He knows he's missing the mark slightly, but he thinks he's close, and maybe God or Jesus can sort of push him over the, over the edge. And so Jesus uses the law. And then Jesus gives him this command in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And we talked about what is the one thing this man lacked, because Jesus tells him three things, doesn't he? Sell, give, follow. And I think the picture is this. The, the rich man ruler is lacking something, and so what he's getting rid of isn't what he's lacking. It's what I think is getting in the way of what he's lacking. So the picture I, I, I painted was he's, his hands and his heart is full of money, and so there's no room for Jesus. So you need to let go of what's in your hands and in your heart. And, and as you let go, it falls on the poor, as it so often does in the Bible. And now, come follow me. That, that I think is so what he's lacking is following Jesus. That's what he's lacking. And people struggle with, with Jesus' demand here of selling everything. It seems extreme. But I'll remind you that this is no new commandment. Jesus, turn, turn back to chapter 14. Turn back to chapter 14. Jesus is simply applying a principle he clearly stated. Jesus does not bait and switch. Jesus is right up front. I love, I love this about our Lord. He doesn't bait and switch. And look at 1425. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them. So this is a general saying to great crowds, everybody, all manner of people. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you, not just the rich young ruler, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is simply putting into practice, this man calls him teacher, let's see if this is Jesus' student or not. And Jesus makes a pointed, particular application of something he said generally and broadly to all his would-be disciples. Okay, I'm your teacher, huh? Sell all that you have, come follow me. Which, 
Lord remembers exactly what he said to Levi, the tax collector. Levi was at his booth. Come follow me. He got up, leaving everything, and followed Jesus. Peter was in his fishing boat. Come follow me. Left everything, followed Jesus. This isn't hyperbole. It's not simply a test. This is a real command that this ruler really disobeyed. So all that you have and come follow me. And then we're told his response in verse 23, and that's where to focus our time this morning, back in chapter 18, 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What's going on here? Why? Why would this man, who's concerned about eternal life, comes to the right source, God's Son on earth, ask the right question, gets told, ultimately, you need to follow Jesus. What's getting in the way is your money. So get rid of it, come follow Jesus. And by clear implication, he doesn't, he refuses. But he does become very sad. We learn at least three things about the rich ruler and his great sorrow. The first is that money was his God. Money was his God. We mentioned how Jesus had only referenced commandments 5 through 9. Here, I think he's getting at the 10th, not coveting. This man loved his money. This man coveted his money. And listen to how Ephesians 5.5 5 speaks of coveting. Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the king of Christ, the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, when you're reading an inerrant and inspired book and the author says, you may be sure of this, let no one deceive you, that should make your ears prick up. Paul is expecting people will come along and say, no, 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 no. You can serve money in God too. You can love and covet other things, and God too. And Paul says, no, you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul likens coveting to idolatry. It's false religion. And so the, the challenge for us as we think through our evangelism is would we have a gospel presentation that would allow this man to think he could have both? Because I assure you, if this man could have Jesus and his money, he would gladly have both. And yet Jesus does not give him that option. Clearly, the cost of discipleship is renouncing what he has. He can't have both. And Jesus said this plainly in Luke 16, 13. I mean, Jesus means what he says. You cannot serve God in money. So Jesus tells this man, pick your God. Am I your God? Come follow me. The rich young ruler's response is, no, money's my God. He was extremely rich. Money was his God. He valued money more than Jesus and eternal life. He valued money more than Jesus and eternal life. Now, when you think something's valuable, you think it's worth something. And that old English word worship simply comes from worth-ship. Make no mistake that what you think is worth living for is the thing you worship. That thing which everything else orbits around, that thing which is most important to you, 
That's what you worship, because that's what you think is worth it. And so this man has got the scales following Christ, following the disciples, money. His money is heavier in the scales. It's more valuable, because he worships money. And ultimately, and tragically, he chose to save his life now rather than later. This is the precise dilemma that Jesus puts before his disciples. Listen to Luke 9, 23 to 24. He said to all, here's another general statement, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That doesn't sound like fun. That sounds like suffering, which is why he says immediately following, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what he's saying is that the temptation and the challenge for those who'd follow Jesus is do I preserve my pleasure and my comfort and my life now? And if you prioritize that, Jesus says you're going to lose your life. You're going to go to hell. But if you're willing to pour your life out here and now, and in a sense lose your life, be open to suffering, be open to mistreatment, you don't live your best life now, then you gain it. This man is looking at money now and eternal life then, and he wants money now. And so he's very sad. So I want you to get this. Unless Jesus made a mistake, he he does not allow the possibility that this man can worship money and him. Or to put it as simply as I can, and this is for you and for me, if you and I will not serve God with your money, you will go to hell. Say that again. If you will not serve God with your money, it will take you to hell. Now, I didn't say if you, won't, if you struggle with that, but if your answer is no, and I'd add that to any area of life, if your answer to God is no, uh-uh, that is your God. And if that condition doesn't change, you will perish. This is ultimately why we do church discipline, is it not? We don't discipline for a particular list of sins. We discipline for a heart that says no to one, a heart that says no to two and three, a heart that says no to the whole body. And then we say, in effect, we love you and we're praying for you, but we don't think you know the Lord. And so a, a gospel that has room for people to worship other gods, I mean, to, to, the notion that this man could come treasuring his money to Christ and the way it's likened to idolatry is the same as saying a Canaanite worshiper of Molech could continue to worship Molech and become a Christian. It's simply not possible. And yet so often in watered-down evangelism, it's entirely possible. Our ears, I'll read one more quote from Walter Chantry, our ears have grown accustomed to hearing men told to accept Jesus as their personal savior, a form of words which is not found in the Bible. It has, in many cases, become an empty phrase. These may be precious words to the Christian, personal Savior, but they're wholly inadequate to instruct a sinner in the way of eternal life. They wholly ignore an essential element of the gospel, namely repentance. And that necessary ingredient of the gospel, preaching, is swiftly fading. All right, one more quote, and I'll be done quoting Chantry. There's little doubt that the ruler would have received... Today's version of the gospel, joyfully. Without the requirement of repentance, he would gladly accept Jesus' help to get to heaven. Surely he would admit that he came short of God's glory. 
Surely he would accept the free gift of eternal life with no strings attached. But he would not empty his hands of filthy lucre to receive the righteousness of God. The barrier was sell whatever you have and give to the poor. He was not ready for that. He was willing to have Christ. He came running to him, but he was not willing to forsake his God, Mammon. And when we talked in the past, we've talked about how repentance focuses on what you're turning from, faith what you're turning to. And the point is this, he can't turn to Jesus as his God while he's coveting and clinging to money as his God. So the repentance is the letting go, the renouncing. I don't want to serve you any more money. I want to follow Jesus. And in your and my life, it can be any number of things. It doesn't have to be money. You see, second thing we learn about him, he rejected childlike obedience and dependence. Luke has placed this narrative um, crucially where he has. We started with Jesus giving the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 9 of chapter 18, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. So we get this moral, religious man who's thanking God, doesn't take credit for it himself, thanking God that he keeps the law. And then you've got this poor, terrible tax collector beating on his breast, I need mercy, I need mercy, help. And Jesus says, shockingly, I'm sure to his audience, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's the principle that we're going to see illustrated in the next two events. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One who humbles himself will be exalted, which is another way of saying a lot of the proud grace to the humble. God crushes the proud. Remember the power of Babel? You remember Nebuchadnezzar walking along his walls? We know what God does to the proud. The humble, the tax collector, the woman washing Jesus' feet. Oh, they get grace. They get grace. But he rejected childlike obedience and dependence. Because the next picture we get, and it's put in stark contrast, babies are welcomed by Jesus. Even the disciples, who to some degree have got this concept, think the babies are too insignificant, too unimportant to be bothering Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, they're a perfect picture of those people who enter the kingdom, who become dependent, helpless, weak, like children. We talked about how it's not childish faith that Jesus is commending, but childlike faith which is kind of a frightening thing because my kids believe everything I tell them for the most part. This isn't teenager faith. That's what they start questioning, right? Childlike faith. Childlike faith is commended. Would this man adopt the position of a child? Well, no. We see point one. He did not truly desire Jesus as his teacher. He comes up, good teacher, but when the teacher gives him the prescription, does he take the prescription and apply it? No. Does he follow Jesus? No. Jesus is not this man's teacher. And back in chapter 11, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And they're to adopt a childlike stance, are they not? They're to pray, our Father, which is radically new. No one in the Old Testament individually called God their Father. Israel might corporately call God their father, but no individual Jew would refer to God as father. This is, this is unprecedented access, familiarity, and intimacy. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Jesus is saying to this rich man, hey, you, you want to inherit the kingdom? Become like a child. Be willing to trust God day by day for what you need. 
And the temptation is, I'd, I'd rather trust my riches for what I need. Thank you very much. They'll provide for me. They'll deliver me. They'll save me. They will give me the full and abundant life. No, he rejected childlike dependence. So when dad said, hey, it's time to put the toys away. It's time to share with your friends. He said, no. No, God's not his father. He doesn't want to be a child of God. He just doesn't want to go to hell. But the third thing you see, and I think this is probably the most shocking, and this is the part that really sort of I hadn't noticed before, but I was chewing on it all week. Despite this, he rejected, money was his God, and he rejected childlike obedience and dependence, yet he accepted Jesus' message and his demands as true. This man accepted Jesus' message and his demands as true. Turn back to chapter 16. Verse verse 14, Jesus has just told his disciples to make friends for yourself in heaven with unrighteous mammon, right? Pay it forward, disperse it now. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Does this man ridicule Jesus? This man say, that's crazy. You think you're a teacher? That's nuts. No, he's very sad. Different response, isn't it? Now, he does not ridicule, he did not ridicule Jesus for his demands. No, we're told not just that he was sorry, he was very sorry. This is the terrible picture. He believed Jesus was right and Jesus was who he said he was, and he accepted, he didn't challenge Jesus' demands. I believe at a, at a cognitive level, he thought it was true. It's kind of like the addict who knows they're killing themselves, who knows they're destroying their life, and is sorry about it, but chooses to go on anyway. That's the terrible picture we have of this man. It's not that he thought, oh, this, this guy's not a good teacher. He, that he wouldn't be sorry and very sorry if that was the case. Now turn, turn to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Paul gives us a helpful distinction you know, at first you might think being sorry is a good sign. And I suppose it's better than scoffing. But these, these are critical words here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 7. Because just because someone's sorry and they feel bad is inconclusive. Paul wrote the Corinthian church a harsh, strong letter. He rebuked them. And picking up in verse 9, he's, he's explaining, I did not enjoy, that was tough. I did not enjoy writing what I had to write. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved or sorrowed, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, godly sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Sometimes we can get confused. Is, is repentance the cause or the effect of salvation? And the answer is both. Repentance leads to salvation, and after being saved, you will continue to exercise faith and to repent. But the Apostle Paul is clear here, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, and in contrast to that is worldly grief which produces death. An unbeliever can be really sorry they destroyed their marriage. An unbeliever can be really sorry they destroyed their life with alcohol addiction. An unbeliever can be really sorry that he ended a friendship with a harsh word. Judas was very, very sorry, was he not? 
And so this man's sorry. I, but the tragedy is he sees what he's giving up. He knows what the stakes are. He understands the reality in front of him. And insanely, he clings to his money because it's his God and it enslaves. Which sets up what Jesus says next. Turn back to Luke 18. That's the logic for why Jesus can then go on to say how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he was sorry. Make no mistake, this is terrifying. He believed at some level Jesus. He accepted his message as true. So again, it's another reason why mental assent is insufficient for what the Bible talks about by faith. The demons believe and tremble, but they don't do as prize, treasure, worship, serve, honor the Lord. They hate him. The demons probably have more accurate theology than you and I do. They're less confused about what's going on. They've just chosen the wrong God, the wrong side, the wrong loyalty and allegiance. Which leaves us then with Jesus' lamentation over the ruler. This is, this is striking. He's still here. Jesus hears his, sees that he's become sad. His answer has become clear to all. So Jesus tells him the demand. Sell what you have, give to the poor, come follow me. And what may have initially started this hopeful optimism that he may not respond like Levi, that he might respond like Peter, or even like Zacchaeus at the beginning of chapter 19. I mean, if you're totally despairing for the salvation of the rich, Luke's going to give us an example of someone who does get it in 19. But here, he becomes sad. And then to anyone watching, that dreadful, oh, you've chosen that, sinks in. And Jesus laments over the ruler in front of the ruler. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, we're not going to fully get through this, but I just want to briefly touch on this. We'll pick it up next week here. Jesus is saying that entry into God's kingdom is impossible for the rich. Impossible for the rich. Now, I've heard some fanciful preaching that talk about this, this gate in Jerusalem, the needle gate, and it was really narrow and it was really low. In order for a camel to get through, it had to get down on its knees and all its bags had to get taken off. That's a fiction. It's, it, I don't know how it populated in preaching, but there's absolutely no data to back that up. And the point is not that. The point is it's impossible. You can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus says as much plainly in verse 27. What is impossible with man. So the picture of a camel going through the eye of a needle is not, it's really difficult. It, no, it's impossible. It can't be done. That's the whole point. It's impossible which leads the crowd to respond, then who can be saved? Because unlike modern circumstances where in many cases those who are wealthy and rich are viewed suspiciously um, as the bad guys, you know, the, 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 as, a, as a one percenter. In, in the Jewish world, this is a man blessed by God. The law of Moses promised economic prosperity and blessing. Abraham is rich. Solomon was very rich. This is a moral Man who can claim that he's never done these and no one in the crowd can call him on it. So he's got an external morality that is good. He's rich. 
viewed as being blessed by God in God's favor. So when they say, then who can be saved? They're viewing this as their best shot. If anyone can be saved, in other words, surely this man can be saved. And so they respond, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus' answer is not, well, no one can be saved. But ultimately, that God alone makes salvation possible. Ultimately, God alone makes salvation possible. This man is proud. He's got the goods of this world, and he has another God. And in his own strength, he does not have the power to let go. He's a slave to what he serves. Jesus says that elsewhere, too. Whomever you present yourself to serve, you become slaves of that one. On his own strength, he cannot humble himself. Faith and repentance are gifts of God. Jesus has said as much earlier in Luke. He's given for people to see. And so we're to understand, I believe, that when we see Zacchaeus act differently, when we've seen Levi act differently, it's not because Levi's a better man than the rich young ruler. And it's not, if you're a Christian today, it's not because you're a better person than the rich young ruler. It's because God did a work in your heart. And it's because God poured out his grace on you. If you're here today and you want Jesus, you can have him. If you're here today and you want to, how can I have eternal life? Follow Christ, trust in Christ, turn to him. But you come empty-handed and not with a U-Haul, not with a load of conditions. There is free grace and salvation available in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross, on his way to, to pay the debt, to soak up the wrath of God for our sin. You can turn to him in faith, be saved, but you can't bring other gods along for the ride. And yes, we'll spend the rest of our life struggling um, to, to cast them off again and again and again. But in principle, we're coming as children. We're coming dependent. We're coming knowing that we're poor. We're broken. I mean, let's end here. Turn back to Luke 4. We'll, we'll end here. And I'll call the worship team up for the final song. Remember when Jesus began his ministry, how he described what he was about and why he angered his hometown. Luke 4, 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus has come as a savior to those who are poor, blind, captives, oppressed, slaves to money. But as soon as his hometown understood, he meant them by that. Rather than humbling themselves and saying, yeah, that's who we are. Praise God, a savior has come to deliver us. They tried to kill him. There's no one too weak, too lowly, too sinful to be saved. There are far too many, too rich, too strong, too wise. It's by God's grace and God's grace alone. It's God who changes the heart. It's God who humbles the proud.